You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Hey guys, welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. So this is the fourth edition of the 10 Questions Podcast. So basically, I put up a little question bubble on Instagram, and you guys submit questions, and I attempt to answer them. Um, So let's get started. So today, the first question is about nursing school versus NP school. Like, how did I deal with both of those, and how did I like both of those? So I, I hated nursing school. I mean, I felt like a little kid. I I mean, I already had a bachelor's at that point and I just, I felt like the way it was set up was designed to be like sort of punitive and like, I I don't know. It just, I mean, I get it. You're, you've got people that essentially probably have no experience in the medical field and you've got to like rein it in and, and control everybody. Um, but I just, I, I loathed nursing school. Now I loved being a nurse, um, once I got out of nursing school, but, um, nursing school itself did not love NP school. Absolutely loved it. Um, I crushed NP school. It was so fun. I actually loved what I was learning. It felt useful to me. It felt like what I was supposed to be doing. Um, whereas a lot of nursing school, like let's take nurse, if you're a nurse, you're going to laugh hysterically when I say it, like nursing diagnoses, it's like, that's not a thing. Right. And you're, you're like forced to do all these things that I feel like are only done in nursing school land and they're not like practical for the real world or real life. So I'm sure somebody's going to hear that and be like real offended. It's my opinion and I'm so sorry, but in in peace school was awesome. And I especially loved, um, I was working full time as a nurse on a med surge floor at the VA in Charleston. And what that means so med surge is like a catch-all for kind of everything and especially at a, a small hospital. So bigger hospitals are really specialized on their floors. So let's take the hospital across the street, which is MUSC. There's a cardiac floor. There's a cardiac surgery floor. There's a cardiac, you know, recovery, cardiac step down. And then there's your, you know, renal floors, your cancer floors, your cancer surgery floors. There's just so many specialized floors. Whereas what I, at the VA, there's medicine or surgery. So you're either there for a medical problem or you had surgery. And when surgery is full, you go to the medicine side. And when the medicine side is full, you go to the surgery side. So it really should just be one giant thing, but it's not. So I took care of everything under the sun. I mean, I'm like putting in rectal tubes, putting down NG tubes, starting IVs, you know, hanging chemo. I mean, doing like crazy. St- this person just had their, you know, a colostomy and colectomy for cancer. Uh, what's it called? Colon cancer. And the person next door had open heart surgery and had a cabbage. And I mean, it was just absolutely everything. Um, and I loved it. And I learned a ton while I was working. Um, and in school, because I'd go learn about something and then be able to connect it clinically to what was going on on my floor. And it just, it like could not have been a better experience if I, um, could have dreamt it up. So that was where I really decided I wanted to work with surgery patients, not in the OR. I've said before, like, I cannot stand the OR. Um, but I, 
I loved working with my cancer surgery patients, um, and I loved being a part of that process. So that was how I um, decided to do that. But and, and somebody else asked, how did I decide to become an NP versus a nurse? But I, I went into nursing school knowing that I wanted to be an NP. So my dad and brother, uh, I mean, at the time, just my dad. My dad was a physician. And um, so I grew up, you know, and he had a couple of nurse practitioners that worked with him as well. So I, I grew up, you know, exposed to that and, and just knew that was what I wanted to do. Um, I, but I just loved um, bedside nursing too. If there was a way to go back and do that, like occasionally, I would totally do it. But I also would probably be real terrible at it right now because I haven't done any of it in 10 years. So yeah, that's that. Um, the next question's a real doozer. Um, is clean beauty better for you? Okay. The reason why this is a doozy is because what does clean even mean? Like, what does that even mean? We don't know. I mean, there's no regulation to the term clean or green or natural or non-toxic. So, and also if you sell beauty counter, like don't at me right now. Like I don't, that's great. Like I get it. You love your products. I also love your makeup. I use a lot of it. So it just depends. And there are a myriad of different ways I feel like to answer this question. I, I think, I think there are two kind of big factors at play here. So one, I think there is the, the, the paraben argument. So parabens are preservatives that are in cosmetics and things like, you know, everything from shampoo to lotion that um, are preservatives. And, you know, there's a reason when you open up your lotion bottle, it doesn't squirt out a bunch of mold. It's got something in there that's keeping that mold from growing. Um, so parabens have been found to be endocrine disruptors um, at what at what dose and exposure is, is really the question. So I think there are a lot of people in, in very different situations. Maybe they've got hormone issues. Maybe they're you know in having infertility issues that are really trying desperately to eliminate any possible endocrine disruptor from their lives. That is totally fine. I mean, it, it, great. Like if you, I th- I think the less we're exposed to certain things like that, that you know probably the better. Um, but also, for example, I think the the. the whole thing really went bananas when I think it was 10 years ago, there was a study that showed um, that found parabens in breast cancer tissue. And so the, the leap was made that parabens are an endocrine disruptor. We found them in breast cancer tissue, therefore parabens cause cancer. Well, what nobody talks about, and I've discussed this with my oncology friend, Ashley, is that the follow-up study actually showed, no, that the parabens themselves were there, but they weren't in any way contributing to the cancer. So, um, yeah, and and I even had a different conversation with an endocrinology friend of mine. So it, it's, you know, there's a lot of, I think, debate on, on that even within the medical community. Um, so clean and better for you, I, I can't even really answer that question. I, then I think you've got kind of this category of, let's say, skincare, where, you know, I was reading a, this dermatologist, a few of them were saying, you know, we do feel like clean is better, but we can't even say, tell, you know, it's hard to even define clean. So you've got all these drugstore, Target, um, skincare brands that have, you know, masks and everybody's making a skincare line because it's so incredibly profitable. And a lot of these things have tons of fragrance. They've got harsh irritants and, you know, that's why they're $3 and you can buy them at Target. And are they good for your skin? Probably not. Well, so what does clean mean in that sense? So it's a really much bigger conversation than I think we're willing to make it. I think we want to say clean beauty is better. And 
Here's why. And I, I just don't think that it's that simple. So are there small changes that you can make that may, you know, benefit you in the long run? Probably. Um, you know, is that more expensive? Yeah. And do I think that clean beauty and as well as clean eating, that's another conversation is being used as a weapon and as a marketing tool? Um, absolutely. I think that a lot of these quote unquote clean beauty companies are really doing a disservice um, to us, making us think that clean is better. Can essential oils cause you hella skin problems? Yes, they can. I mean, absolutely. So natural is often not better. I mean, what's more natural than poison ivy? Not much. And does that go on your face? Sure don't. So it, it's really tough. I mean, an example of this too is one time and I was in a clean makeup store that's downtown Charleston, which I love. I, lo- I like their, the make, I like the feel of some of them and the smell, like that's fine. That was as my preference for some things. And then I also use, you know, L'Oreal brow mascara. Like I, I, you can, you can be in both worlds and that's okay. You're going to live. But I was asking the girl that works there about this line and she said, oh yeah, we don't carry anything with any retinoids in here. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Why? And she's like, well, they're not safe. And I said, really? Why? Because I know a decent amount about retinoids. Really? Why? And she said, well, our owner feels like anything that's not safe to use in pregnancy or nursing should never be, you know, you shouldn't be using that anyway. And I was like, like, that's not an, that's a non-answer. That's a way of saying, I don't actually understand this. Because if you did understand it, then you would say, well, gosh, that's quite a leap. Then we should say, well, none of us should ever drink. And, you know, none of us should ever, you know, be consuming soft cheeses or, I mean, my gosh, you can like, that's a stretch and you just can't say it. And also it's all about how much it's actually absorbed through the skin. And we know it it actually is probably fine to use retinoids in pregnancy. It's actually, it's out of an absolute abundance of caution. Anyway, I, I digress. So that was a really, really long answer to clean beauty. Um, I would like to have an entire episode on that. Honestly, I'd like to have like a panel when things are normal and I can have multiple people in a room recording. I'd love to have a panel panel with my friend, Ashley, who's an oncologist, my friend, Brittany, who is an endocrinologist. And then, you know, me and maybe somebody else in the skincare industry, maybe my friend Meg Workman. Are you listening? Maybe Meg, we've always wanted to collaborate. So maybe this is how, um, kind of along the same lines, the next question was about lemon water and alkaline water. Uh, Are those good for you? So, um, it's important to remember that your body can only function at certain pH levels, right? And that is what your digestive system, kidneys, liver, that's what all of that are, are, that functions to make sure that your bloodstream is at an optimal pH. So you can drink all the lemon water and alkaline water you want, but it's going to get neutralized once it goes through that filtration system. So, I mean, go nuts, man, but you're, that's, there's no evidence that alkaline water makes a difference in humans. Um, so is it going to hurt you? No, certainly not. But it's, do you need to pay more for it? Probably not. Um, yeah. So, and you know what, if you like squeezing a lemon in your water, cool. I, that, nobody's, nobody's stopping you. No big deal. Put some lemon in your water. We're, we're here for you. That's fine. Okay. Now almost every 
other person asked me when and why are we moving to Nashville? A lot of people asked what happens to the skin click when I move to Nashville. Okay, so let's just tell a little story about my husband who he is like such an enigma and such a brilliant man. Um, and he has a very unique skill set and set of talents. So he trained as an internal medicine physician, did extra time in the ER and the ICU for critical care. And when he came out, he basically did 8 million different jobs for like the first five to eight year, maybe even 10 years of his career. He worked in multiple different ERs. He also worked in the prisons. He loves prison medicine. Um, he started what we'll get to this, but he started a nonprofit called One World Health, um, did a boatload of global medicine, was like halfway through his MPH and then was like, I'm actually doing this in real life. I don't need to pay for a master's to get it. Um, he loves the technology of medicine. So he's really big in the telemedicine world. He does consulting for that. So he's just like a unique skill set type of man, right? So he has we've almost moved twice in the last two years. We almost moved to my hometown, Macon, actually had a a great job offer there. And then, um, we almost moved to Houston, um, about eight, eight or nine months ago. Um, he had a great offer at Houston Methodist, but ultimately those were good career moves, good job moves, but not good family location moves for us. Like our, our family. Um, we, he turned the jobs down, um, in both places. Cause we just didn't feel like it, those made sense for us. Um, and, and it was just weird, like timing the make and move. Obviously my family is there, but that was like, literally, I was like, I have a brain hole. And we, we had just moved in Charleston y'all. We had literally just moved in like August. And this is in September. He was talking about moving our entire family to Macon. And I was like, I have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning right now. And I like, I can't, I like literally couldn't, the timing of that could not have been worse. So it just didn't work out. And then thank heavens, we didn't move to Houston in January. And then COVID would have been in March and we would have been stuck in Houston with no friends or family, no way to get to friends or family. And we wouldn't have even had a yard really in the house that we wanted to buy because it was, we loved it, but it didn't have a yard. Um, so I am like rambling, but back to Nashville, we talked about cities that we would be willing to move because I knew that Ed had kind of maxed out what he was doing in his current career, um, at where he was in, in Charleston or where he is in Charleston. So I said, okay, I'll basically take like a big Southeast city. So I'm okay with like Charlotte, Atlanta, Birmingham, Chattanooga. And we have tons of friends in Nashville. Our very, very best friends in the whole world are in Nashville. Um, and he actually has had three offers this year, um, for Nashville. The other two didn't really make sense, but then, um, there was a, is a huge company called Wellpath. Um, and he's going to be the VP of VP at Wellpath. And it, that just made sense. That made sense for him career wise. It made sense for us. We have friends there. It's not any farther from my family. Um, so yeah, that just, that just made sense, um, to us to move to Nashville. So as for the timing of that, that's tricky. We don't know. Um, We're building a house, so we just don't know. Probably prematurely, we sold our house in Charleston. So we're in a little bit of a limbo slash purgatory until we get to Nashville. But um, yeah, so I thought we were moving in like two weeks, but now it might not be for six months or so because Ed's whole office is working remotely right now anyway. So it's just like a weird time. Um. 
we have both lived in Charleston for the majority of our adult lives. I've lived in Charleston longer than I've lived in my hometown. Um, went to college at Charleston, stayed for, you know, nursing and NP school. Um, Ed went to, to med school there and, um, yeah, we have so many friends obviously in Charleston and, and love it, um, so much, but, it's just, yeah, time for a change for our, our family and for, you know, for Ed career-wise. It's a, it's a really great move, um, and we're excited. We're excited about Nashville. It feels like it makes sense, whereas um, other places that, you know, he gets pursued, it just felt like, I don't know if that makes sense, but Nashville kind of feels like it makes sense, so. So if you've been following DabbleCo and me for any length of time, you know that I'm super careful with anybody that I endorse or any partnership or brand here. So the goal is always to share evidence-based medicine and things backed by actual science with our audience and our followers. So I was thrilled when BetterHelp approached me to do a partnership with them. So thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. BetterHelp is an online platform that connects you to counseling in an incredibly convenient and affordable way, which I think are the two biggest barriers to counseling or access and affordability. So I was actually really surprised when I looked up their rates for counseling. They were a third of what I feel like I've ever heard and what I've personally paid. Um, It solves both of the problems with literally the click of a button on the internet. So I have personally seen the benefits of counseling. I know firsthand how important it is, and I know it plays a crucial role in mental health. So check them out, and they will know that I sent you, and you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling if you head to betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Um, so it's super easy, betterhelp.com slash co. Thanks, guys. Oh, and the skin click, somebody asked about that. So um, thank you. Nothing will happen. We are in multiple states all over the southeast already. And in fact, we already have three injectors in Nashville. Um, they just were onboarded with us about three weeks ago, so they're just kind of ramping up their practices now. Um, but yeah, when I move there, I certainly will continue to inject. So if you're in Nashville and you would like to have concierge Botox in your home or at your office, let me know and I'll connect you with somebody there or I will do it when I get there. Um, but yeah, we're, we're excited for at least for skin click too. And I can see, you know, the company is growing so much that I can see us moving some of our operations at some point right now, everything's in out of Merle's Inlet. Um, but you know, it's possible that we'd, we would have to move the corporate stuff out of Merle's and anyway, so we'll see who's to say the world is our oyster. Um, but I love that question and thank you. Thank you for thinking of me. Um, okay. This is a good one. What is adrenal fatigue and is it real? The short answer is no. Adrenal fatigue is not real. Here is the thing. Your symptoms are very real. So that is what makes this tricky and so frankly manipulative by um, functional and alternative medicine. So what's going on? I'm going to read, basically, I'm just going to read this because Danielle Bellardo, one of my favorite humans, um, she's a cardiologist and posted the systematic review this week. I'm so glad this question came up because I saw this post and I was like, this is an amazing summary. So a systematic review is basically the highest level of research that can be done. It's researching the research. So this took 58 studies that had already been done and essentially like summarized the findings of those studies. So 
Adrenal fatigue is an attractive theory in functional and alternative medicine as it links stress exposure to adrenal exhaustion as a possible cause of lack of energy. The adrenal depletion would cause brain fog, low energy, depressive mood, salt and sweet cravings, lightheadedness, and other vague symptoms. Sounds really plausible, right? So plausible that functional medicine providers even misdiagnose patients with this all the time and sell them supplements that are not approved or or regulated by the FDA made of ground-up bovine adrenal glands and hydrocortisone, literally. So, physicians and scientists did what they should do. They studied this mysterious disease. With 58 studies, you read that right, 58 studies and a systematic review concluded that there is no scientific basis to adrenal fatigue, none. Even this, and I love talking to my friend who's an endocrinologist about this, but even on the Endocrine Society website, they state, there is no scientific proof to support adrenal fatigue as a true medical condition. Now, wouldn't you think... Like, of all specialists, endocrinologists specialize in hormones. They specialize in the adrenal gland. Wouldn't it behoove them tremendously to have adrenal fatigue as a real medical diagnosis? Because people will be coming out the woodwork to get fixed by these endocrinologists. And they're even like, uh, you know, this is not a thing. So what happens is you have these symptoms that are very real that fall into this what is being diagnosed as adrenal fatigue theory, but they overlook and and don't address the real problem. Anemia, thyroid disease, growth hormone deficiency, low aldosterone, menopausal issues, sleep apnea, depression, anxiety. So yes, your symptoms are very real, but you need to get fully worked up by someone who can actually help you get to the bottom of them and is not going to just sell you Y'all, these supplements for adrenal fatigue are like $200 a month. I mean, you want to talk about predatory? Josh Axe is predatory. And what he is selling is basically snake oil. I mean, it is bananas. So I'm so sorry if you've been diagnosed with this. It ain't real. Your symptoms are real. Let's get to the bottom of those. Um when this episode goes out on Monday, I will post um, that article so you guys can read it because it's it's really good. Um, I think people hear, you know, someone saying adrenal fatigue is not real and it, it gets conveyed as your symptoms are not real. And of course your symptoms are real. So let's actually figure out what's causing them. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's frustrating. It's, that's one of the things that I feel is very frustrating and the functional medicine space, which can be amazing. But like anything, sometimes people take too hard of a left and um, start latching onto these theories that just, you know, are not true. So that's sad. Bums me out. Somebody asked, why are we, me, my husband and myself, so involved with One World Health? Well, I will tell you because my husband, which I just bragged on a minute ago, started One World Health. So One World Health is a nonprofit that builds sustainable medical systems and hospitals in uh, developing nations. So several years ago, gosh, like when we were dating, basically 2009, um, my husband and his friend, Matt Alexander, um, basically decided that short-term missions, medical missions needed to be different. So Ed had been on tons of medical missions in uh, college and med school. And was just really uncomfortable with, you know, going somewhere short term, you'd practice medicine on folks for a week, um, you know, help them temporarily and then go home and then what happens? So he said, why can't we tie in short term missions with long term, you know, something sustainable and something that's there 
treating these people. Because, like, if you treat somebody for blood pressure for two or three months and that's it, then when they get off their medicine, they can, you know, their blood pressure skyrockets, they can have a stroke, they can die. I mean, it can be actually worse. So in two African countries, Burundi and predominantly Uganda, Burundi's tough right now because of the, the politics, but um, it's really became unsafe very quickly. But um, so predominantly now in Uganda and then in Central America, predominantly Nicaragua, but also Honduras and then doing some outreach in Costa Rica. Um, so what happens is there is a short-term piece where we take medical missions trips, um, four times a year, sometimes more, just depending on the schedules, um, to all of these locations. But then when nobody's there from our teams, there are fully functioning hospitals and clinics all over these countries that have, um, local doctors, nurses, um, running the show. And it, when I say sustainable, what that means is that their payment model is such that um, they, it's basically a sliding scale. So if you're able to pay something, you pay and they have a way, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know how they figure this out, but they have a way to, to basically assess income and, um, and people who are able to pay something, pay something. If you can pay your full bill, you pay it. If you can pay none of your bill, you pay none of it. But that actually makes these hospitals, um, profitable. And so we're able to expand and continue to hire staff. And it's really incredible. I have been to Uganda seven, six or seven times, and then been to Nicaragua four or five times, um, on trips. And once for vacation, we were supposed to go, um, spend a little time down there this summer, but you know, the COVIDs. So we, we couldn't, but, um, if you have any interest in any doing a medical mission trip at all, um, even if you're not medical, the way that I phrase it to people is like, okay, when you go to your doctor's office, there's like 10 people working in there that are running the show. They're not medical at all because you got to have those people literally doing the logistics. And that is exactly how it is um, on our trips. If there weren't non-medical people, then the medical people couldn't function. So it's amazing. Um, And I, gosh, we were supposed to go back to Uganda. Ed's been to Nicaragua a couple times, but had, my daughter was 18 months. Evie was 18 months old. Um, and right the day before we were about to leave, no, a couple of days before she got, she had RSV and, um, just kept getting sicker and sicker. And so the day before I was like, we got to call it like either we're getting on the plane or we're not. And, um, cause it's like two days of like flights and travel. It takes a long time to get up there. <laughs> And she wound up in the hospital. So I decided then I was like, okay, I'm going to wait till my, both of my kids are slightly older. So we probably will try to make it back to Africa next year if we can. Um, and we, yes, we will take our, people ask me all the time, will you take the kids? Yeah, we absolutely will take the kids when they're a little bit older. Um, really, because the travel is a nightmare. Um, but yeah, absolutely. We, we feel super safe. Um, in, in all these countries where we go and we will take our kids when they're old enough to handle the, the travel, maybe eight and 10, 10 and 12. Who's to say favorite TV shows or movies. Okay. I love friends. Um, if you want to play friends trivia with me, I will destroy you. Um, I have the whole box set and for the last probably 15 years of my life have fallen asleep at night with friends playing in the background have not been doing that recently because once it was taken off of Netflix, I don't, we don't have a DVD player in our bedroom, but I do have all the DVDs. So maybe when we move, I'll get a DVD player. 
a fancy um, DVD player and I'll be able to do that again. So I can like literally recite every single episode. I love it so much. Aside from that, uh, Parks and Rec, if you haven't watched Parks and Rec, you're really missing out. Um, obviously The Office, um, what's the other, Liz Lemon, oh my gosh, um, why can't I think of the name right now? That's going to really bother me. Liz Lemon. Who is Liz Lemon on what the TV show? Y'all help me. We'll come back to it. Um, my favorite movies are probably all the Christopher Guest in Wes Anderson movies. So like Royal Tenenbaums, um, Best in Show, love those, but also love like a good murder, weird situation. Um, if, if you have not seen, um, oh my gosh, what is it? The Casey Affleck, Manchester by the Sea. It's hard to say that's one of my favorite movies ever because it was so sad that it's like weird to say that. I'm going to tell y'all, I sat in that movie theater. We went to see it with my brother and sister-in-law. When I say weeping, that's not really an accurate enough depiction of what was happening in the movie theater. I'm talking about ran out of napkins, was like blowing my nose in my shirt openly sobbing. I looked over. Ed was definitely crying. He says he was not, but he hundred percent did. That is a movie. Like I will never forget. I mean, it was unbelievable. I don't know. I have a ton of movies. That's really honestly very hard for me because I love movies so much. I love movies. I love TV. Um, and I, every year actually try to watch before the Oscars come out, I would try to watch all the best picture nominees um, before they came out. So I'm trying to think if there have been really any like surprising ones that were really good in the last. Oh, 30 rock. Thank you. God, I'm sorry. I had to Google that. I love, I love 30 rock. I love, uh, Liz Lemon and Jack, uh, whatever his name is, um, on 30 rock, Alec Baldwin's character. I mean, classic. It's after five o'clock lemon. What am I a farmer? I mean, come on. (sighs) Moving on. I could talk about movies and TV all day because I love them so much. All right. Now, somebody asked me a really specific question, but asked if I would phrase it, you know, for more of like the general population. And I love this question. So basically she gave me her husband's really specific, um, family history of cancer and just said, you know, what are we supposed to be doing for screening? But she said, you know, can you talk about cancer screening in a a more uh, general sense? And I love this question. So what I would say, this is a really, this sounds like an easy question. Like, how should we screen for cancer? This is a really, really complicated question. So for a lot of cancers that are super common, there's a set of guidelines that we follow for the general population. Like colon cancer starts screening at 40. Breast cancer used to be mammograms starting at 40. Then they changed it recently, maybe start at 50. Maybe do every two years instead of every year. So there's some really general um, screenings. You know, PSA for men. Um, they're just pap smears for women. So there's some general guidelines that we follow, right? Within those guidelines, though, there's even more specific sets that have to do predominantly with family history and other risk factors. And so the first thing you should do really is talk to your primary care provider because they should be able to tell you just a general, you know, hey, you're a 25-year-old female. Uh, you need to be having PAPs. I, I don't know the guidelines. I think it's every year. I don't know, every two years. Um, hey, you're a 45-year-old male. Have you gotten your colonoscopy yet? So, so that's just the first general rule is talk to your PCP. They should be able to tell you um, just a, a, in general 
based on your, you know, age, sex, race, all of these things play into how you need to be screened. And then comes in your family history. And that can be super complicated. So if you have a significant family history of, even if it's not the same cancer, like, let me, let me think of an example. Okay. You might have a family history. If somebody has thyroid cancer, a couple people have thyroid cancer, a couple people, maybe one person has pancreatic cancer, a couple of random things that you don't really tie together. Well, that might be something called MEN1 or multiple endocrine neoplasia or MEN2 or three. So, and you don't necessarily know that your primary care provider may not necessarily know that. But if you've got multiple issues of cancer in your family, consider seeing a genetic counselor, um, consider connecting with an oncology office. Like in, for example, breast, high risk breast people. Um, when I worked on the breast team at MUSC, we would get sent new people all the time that just had a really crazy family history of breast cancer and specific risk factors, um, specific types of exams. And they would come get screened by us every year um, instead of their PCPs because it, it's, it can be that complicated. Um, we often recommend to people go see the genetic counselor and the genetic counselor. I tell you what, I mean, these people are coming out of the woodworks with some weird ass syndromes and diagnoses that you, no one's ever heard of. That's like, Oh, the PQ, uh, seven, one, eight deletion. Yes. I, I don't know. I mean, these people are smart. They go, they find, they go through, I was going to say fine tune. That's not accurate. They go through your family history with a fine tooth comb pick out all these different things and then basically decide what they need to screen you for. And, and it's really incredible. So that's why I say all that. It, it can be, it can be really complicated. And, and I love it in the context of the, I love that question in the context of someone, someone's death like Chadwick Boseman. So he was a 41 year old, um, seemingly healthy guy. We don't know anything about his symptoms. We don't know anything about his family history. What we do know is that colorectal cancer is much higher um, rate of diagnosis among African Americans than any other group in the U.S. We know that death rates from colorectal cancer are much higher among African Americans than any other population in the, in the United States. So, while it was, you know, his certainly his choice to keep his health information private, it's like, man, you know, ah, what what a what a missed opportunity for awareness. That I, I think, you know, as you as you get older, I'm 36, and 40 doesn't seem old to me anymore, like at all. I mean, I'm like, 40 is not old, like. I don't know what even is old anymore. 70? Maybe. Maybe not. I mean, my parents are 70. They don't seem old. So, you know, would he, he, I think I understand he got diagnosed at 39. So maybe he wouldn't have had a screening, but maybe he would have if he had a family history and had talked to somebody about it. I don't know. I'm totally speculating, but, um, I, I am glad that, you know, the country is kind of taking that as an opportunity to say, whoa, he seemed like a young, healthy guy. And he, um, he died of a cancer that we can often, um, pick up with, with screenings. So, um, yeah, it's crazy. That's a really, all that to say, it, that's a complicated question. So pr start with your primary care. And if you feel like you just don't get enough information from your primary care and you're really concerned about your, your risk level, then go see a genetic counselor, you know, talk to your local oncology office and see if, if they, um, are willing to see you and if they want you to see genetic counselor or, or what, um, it's not going to hurt anybody to do that. Um, so well, one more thing I got asked about that I love, and, and this also has to do with cancer is the consumption of soy and soy products. So this is kind of a two sided answer. Um, 
so in terms of the consumption of just regular soy, like tofu, I would say whole soy, not, not regular soy, whole soy products like soy milk, tofu, um, you know, edamame, soy, roasted soy nuts, all of that. Um, is there an, an associated risk with breast cancer? So no is the, the short answer that has been studied. Um, and the answer is no. The reason why people think there might be a risk is because soy has isoflavones, which can mimic estrogen. Well, you'd have to be eating an ungodly amount of soy for that to actually happen. Um, I remember sitting in a, a tumor board having that discussion with um, a really well-respected breast surgeon that I worked with. And she was like, I mean, we're talking buckets and buckets every day. Now, the second part to that is soy supplements. These, still a little bit on the fence, they basically have high concentration. If you think about the potency of soy, is very different for soy supplements. So that's actually probably a no. Um, there's plenty of plant-based proteins, protein supplements, um, hemp, you know, pea protein, all kinds of stuff that can be a supplement that it, that we know are fine. Um, so I, I would say if you're a woman, probably skip them. Um, and simply because estrogen, high estrogen is, is associated with, with breast cancer. And if you're taking in this incredibly potent soy, then you may be getting in the category of, of buckets and buckets. Um, but yeah, so I would say whole soy products, great soy supplements, not so much. Um, I decided with these 10 questions, I would like to end on a happy and positive note. And happy and positive is that y'all are asking me about my hair all the time as if I am, have some wizardry that I'm going to share with you. I am not. Um, I have a lot of hair. I have a lot of hair on my head. I have hairy arms. I have to like dermaplane at least once a month or I could like be in Barnum and Bailey's. So I, I just have a lot of hair and I'm super lucky and, and very thankful. Um, I don't have any magical tricks. I will say I don't wash my hair very often and that's intentional. I hate washing my hair. It's a huge pain. I think it's so much better for your hair not to wash it. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what I do. I use currently, I, cause y'all ask, I use Kevin Murphy shampoo. Um, and I use Bumble and Bumble dry shampoo predominantly. Um, I just discovered they have a wet, my actually girl who cuts my hair. Hey Kelly, um, showed me that they have this wet shampoo, wet. This is confusing. It's a spray, like wet spray dry shampoo for after you've worked out, which sounds insane. But if you've worked out and you're going to let your hair air dry or who knew we're supposed to be blow drying the sweat into our hair. 2020 has been wild. Tell ya. Um, but you know, then your hair smells bad. No, no, it doesn't. You get your Bumble and Bumble workout dry shampoo, spray it in there. Smells like you just washed your hair, but you didn't. All that to say, big fan of dry shampoo. Uh, use it liberally. If you really want to go nuts, put it in the night before. Let it soak up all the oil. And then you truly, I mean, I can go a solid three or four days without washing my hair. Other people can go even longer. That's pretty good for me because my roots are start to get dark and gross. But yeah, Ed loves it. He loves that I never wash my hair. That's a joke. He's like, your hair actually smells. Please wash it. Um, 
but yeah, I just, I, I don't care. So that's that ending on a high note. Um, if you like this podcast, please rate, please subscribe, tell your friends, share it. That's how people find me. That's how people find the podcast. That's how I can get better quality content and better quality guests to you guys. And if you like hearing actual medical professionals, give you real, real advice. Let me know if you have any suggestions. I want to hear from you. What do you want to, what do you want to hear about? Who do you want to hear from? Send me a message, shoot me an email and I'll see you next week.